I just think that sometimes we who have been around for a while forget to tell the newcomer this one thing, and it is do not drink or drug no matter what. No matter what, don't do it. And that your life will get different and different will be better. That was Jody Wright, and this is the Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast and today we have J.A. Wright joining us on the show. Jody is the author of How to Grow an Addict and Jody's book is a novelization about Randall Grange, a young girl who is trying to navigate the testy waters of her family life and come out unscathed despite growing up in a house full of addicts and abusers. It reads like a memoir, a sort of come clean string of consciousness that chronicles her rise, or rather fall, from a young girl to a young woman. It's not her story, but Jody's story is very similar. She grew up in an alcoholic home, a dysfunctional home, which ultimately led her to quickly turn to alcohol as a teenager until her life completely unraveled. She has been clean now since February of 1985. So we've got a lot of great recovery in this story as well. So without further ado, let's jump into Jody's story. But first, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. The first way is by donating via PayPal or Bitcoin. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners who have been generously donating every month to the Share Podcast. Make no mistake about it, you guys are making a huge difference. But again, we can always use more. And now you can even send us donations using Bitcoin. So if you go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, on the top right corner, there's a donate button. Click on that button and it'll take you to the page where you can donate either by PayPal or by Bitcoin. On a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me $5 a month or more, there are a few listeners that are sending 10 20 and even $50 every month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me $5, either by PayPal or by Bitcoin, then by all means, please feel free to donate now. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you just like in the meetings that are newcomers, the money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast Private Accountability Group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast 
private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to The Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www SoberNation.com. SoberNation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Jody, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling great today. It's a good day. Excellent. I love it. All right, folks. Well, today we have Jody Wright joining us on the Share Podcast. And Jody is the author of How to Grow an Addict. It's a fictional novel about drug addiction and alcoholism and which we will go into a little bit during our interview. So, Jody, you ready to get started? I am. Excellent. Okay, well, let's dive right in. Well, first of all, tell us about your normal daily routine, including recovery. All right, well, I'm just going to be really honest with you. So, when I wake up, or when I come to whatever, that come conscious in the morning, right? Not uh, The first thing I do is I do, uh, I pray. That's the first thing I do. I just say something. I just acknowledge that there's something in my life greater than myself um, in some way. And, um, and that's how I start my day. And that's how I've started my day since, uh, since somebody told me to do that when I was, you know, seven or eight months clean. Somebody said, why don't you try this? Because whatever you're doing isn't working for you. And I tried it. And I felt better. I mean, I didn't feel great, but I started to feel better. And better was good. Better was good. <laughs> <laughs> better was very good. Yeah, that's right. So that's how I start. And then, um, well, I do have coffee in the morning. I have a big cup of coffee. I am, I am married to a man in recovery. So we kind of have a recovery house. So we share the readings in the morning. We still read over coffee and toast. Um, we pick something out of you know, literature from one of the 12-step programs. And we probably spend 10 or 15 minutes reading that over breakfast. 
before we start talking about anything else, about what are you going to do today? How's work going to go? I just feel like if I'm centered and I've made some kind of contact with a power greater than me, that my day is going to go better. And um, it usually does. Beautiful. That's an amazing way to start the day. It's just, it's just like we were taught in the beginning. Like you said, there's that foundation that, we, that, that was instilled in us, and it worked then. Why wouldn't it work now? That's absolutely true. What worked then will work now. We just forget sometimes, and um, that's why I, I stay connected to my recovery group. I, stay, I still have a sponsor. I still make a phone call once in a while and say, hey, you know, I can't figure this out. I'm feeling really, I got that free-floating anxiety, which I still get once in a while. And But now it's usually a, a direct result of me saying or doing something that I shouldn't have, and I have neglected to clean it up. So I'm dwelling on it. It's not, <laughs> you know, it has nowhere to go except stir in my brain, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so that's how you start your day. Okay. And what kind of regular routines do you have as far as work or do you write on a regular basis or what is it you do day to day? All right. So after, after uh, my husband goes to work, um, he leaves the house. Now I don't leave my house because I have an office at home, but I have an office at home because I live, I don't live in the States anymore. I live in New Zealand and I live in a city named Christchurch that had a horrific earthquake almost six years ago that destroyed most of the city and um, in my office, which was downtown, which has not been rebuilt. So in the past six years, I, uh, I've established a, a home office that is great in lots of ways. Like I can be in my pajamas all day. Okay. <laughs> that, that is always great. Um, but I don't have a, I have to go out of my house to have interaction with other people, which never used to be the case. I, I there were people all around in the, in the downtown area I worked. So I, I do write, I try to write every morning uh, for at least an hour about whatever it is that's going on, whether it's um, I'm writing an essay or I'm working on another novel or I journal or, you know, I have something that's, you know, I always seem to be working on a bit of a four-step somewhere, you know, somewhere there's always this little bits of a four-step that I should complete, but I never quite get around to. Not that I haven't done six or seven. I have. But um, <laughs> but I still has I still have a sponsor who says, "Huh, was that ever in your four step?" And I'm like, "No, probably not." So, um, so that's what I do. I also I run, I, I run four days a week by myself, um, and um, I have to drive a little way to the trail that I like to run, um, and. I do work. I, I mean, other than that, I have a job job. I'm a, um, I'm a producer, a promoter. I produce festivals and concerts and events. I'm in that kind of entertainment industry. Um, and I currently have two festivals that I produce every year. But um, I have worked in this industry for a long time, and I have created and produced a lot of, a lot of festivals and shows. Okay. All right. Now, so what brings you – you're in Seattle right now, right? I, I grew up here. I grew up right outside of Seattle, and I moved to New Zealand when I was 30. Okay. All right. So then are you visiting home, or was there another reason why you're over? You're back home? I'm visiting my parents, and I have a few sisters here. So it's, um, you know, I, I do come once in a while. I, I share the, the load. You know, my sisters and I take care of our parents, and we try to take care of our parents. 
So it's my turn. Gotcha. Gotcha. I understand. And so uh, we've got an idea of what your day-to-day routine is. What about your recovery routine? Do you do any meetings? Do you do any online meetings? How does that fit into the equation? Oh, I have a home group. I go to three meetings a week still, and I sponsor a few women. So um, I'm very, I'm active. I, I talk to somebody or I interact with somebody every day um, other than my husband in recovery. And, you know, sometimes I have to make an effort to do that. Sometimes I might have to be the one who calls the newcomer to see how she's doing because she just hasn't caught on to picking up the phone yet or she wants to text, which, mm, you know, not so good. Uh, I want to hear someone's voice. <laughs> but that's the bad thing about the, the, the texting thing. I want to hear the voice. If I can hear the voice, then. You know, yeah, you know what's going on. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, I do that. I, I make an effort every day to do that. And I do it for me. I don't do it for anybody else. Excellent. Excellent. So tell us, uh, I mean, I've, we already got the idea. Tell us again, uh, how much clean time do you have and when's your anniversary date? I was 32 years clean and sober on February 8th. Oh my God, you just celebrated. Amazing. Just had, I just had a break. I just want to say it's not my fault. And I never intended to be 32. Honest, I really never intended to be that old timer that nobody <laughs> wants to sit by or talk to. You know, God, I hated those people. I just couldn't stand it. I'd go to the meetings. I'd think, oh, look at them all sitting over there. They got this. They got matching shoes on. Their lipstick isn't running all over their face. You know, they didn't chain smoke like I did. I mean, <laughs> you know. They could read really well, you know, those kind of things. And so I didn't. So to be one of those 32-year sober old-timers, I'm, I, not that I think I'm an old-timer, <laughs> that people don't want to talk to, it, isn't always a joyous thing. You know? so <laughs> it's my sponsor's fault that I'm clean and sober. She kept me distracted from myself long enough for me to figure out that I could, that I could live in this world clean and sober. And that, that's what I needed. She kept me so busy for the first couple of years that it took that long before I like, wait a minute, I have been, I haven't had a pill. I haven't had a line. I haven't had a drink. I can't, are you sure I haven't had any of those things? It was like two years. I was like, I can't believe it. Really? So it was because I was so busy. I had so many other things going on. She had me just, you know, flat out every day. Crazy. Expect a miracle. That's right. Expect it. It's coming. It's coming. So just just give us a you know a brief a brief synopsis of well you know why you decided to write how to grow an addict. Well, I tried to write a memoir for years. I was always a writer of some sort. Not not very good, and I'm not very well educated in a formal sense. But. Um, Ever since I was little, I, I would write poems or short stories, and I usually threw them away so no one would find them. But anyway, that was my thing. Um, and when I got when I got clean and sober, I I started I, I took well my sponsor made me go to these uh, adult education courses on reading, writing, punctuation, grammar. She, you know, she was one of her projects was let's see what you can learn here. And one of those classes was a creative writing class, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and so I just kept going and kept going. And I, and I thought, I'll write a memoir. 
And I probably wrote like 40,000 words of a memoir. And I sent it to my sister because I wanted her to fact check it. And unfortunately, uh, I, I had, I, I'm the I'm the drug addict in the family that just drug all my family through all of my crap, make sure that they got to experience, you know, you know, why, why leave them out of that fun? Um, so she was unfortunately with me lots. And so she read it and then she wrote me back and she said, you know, this isn't, you've mixed up some stories with other people in the family that didn't really happen to you. And this part was no, no, that happened in a movie that we went to and you were really drunk. And so it wasn't, I couldn't figure it out. I can't do it. I couldn't do it. And she said, and I knew then that, um, if I was ever going to tell this story and the story of how young women, you know, in their twenties arrive into recovery and the help they usually had along the way, meaning that we usually come from families that are accustomed to using drugs and alcohol and we're exposed to drinking and we become very familiar with the effects of, you know, a sleeping pill at 10 o'clock or, you know, we just become, because it's available to us, those kind of women who arrive in recovery, like me, we all seem to have a similar story, and that's the story I wanted to write. So, well, this novel is not my story day-to-day what happened. A lot, some of the things that did happen and that I did do, are they're twirled around into that, into that novel. Well, it's kind of like when you, you get to a meeting and you're sharing with others, uh, and you hear your story and somebody else's share and vice versa, it's, yeah. you know, one addict helping another, one addict sharing a, a story. Uh, it's just a little bit different, but it's all the same. Correct. Um, so, yeah, so it all kind of intertwines. And it's probably very liberating. Yeah, how many pages you, did you say it is? It's 99,000 words, so it's 300 pages. I wrote a lot more, but I had an editor that said, oh, we're going to take this out and take this out. <laughs> I'm like, well, wait a minute. Those are my favorite parts. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, well they're kind of funny but um <laughs> they don't belong in this story oh, and that's okay. true they don't you know thank god for good editors really they, they they didn't but they were they were the things that the things that i laughed the most when i was writing were the things that got taken out i understand why now but um <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it's the process it's the process right absolutely absolutely so Tell us, Jody, how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did they make you feel? Oh, I was very young because I grew up in a family of um, problem drinkers, heavy drinkers, pill poppers, troublemakers. That's my family. And I became just like them. So alcohol was around all the time. There wasn't, there was never a day that alcohol wasn't available sitting on the counter in somebody's coffee cup. Um, and then there was always a lot of pills. Most of the women in my family took, you know, tranquilizer, sleeping pills. It was just all, I, I, I just never remember a time when there wasn't a dinner, anything where people weren't really drunk, you know, out of hand, uh, out of control. So I was probably, I started sipping people's drinks because I became a bartender. I was really good at eight or nine years old. I could make lots of different drinks. You know, I'll go get the Harvey Wallbanger. I'll make the Harvey Wallbanger for you. <laughs> and, I, and I would drink it 
I would drink it on the way to giving it to my aunt, my uncle, whatever, whoever asked me for it. Pouring a beer. You know, I, I was probably 10 years old when I started to collect empty liquor bottles, Crown Royal being my favorites. I had an aunt that worked at a nice cocktail lounge outside of Seattle, and she would bring me these bottles. And um, so I had, you know, they made a lot of noise when I shut my closet door in my bedroom. They, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the other thing, the other great thing about them is that I, you know, the blue or the purple pouches that they came in? Yes. They were my pencil bags. They were my lunch bags. <laughs> All the bags I had were crown royal purple pouches. All of them. Every, every bag I had up until like junior high school, that's what it, they were the best bags. You could do lots of stuff with those bags. So that's what, that's what I had. That's what was going on. Did any of the teachers say anything yes. about you walking around with a crown royal bag? Yes, they did. But then they knew where I'd come from. We were quite poor and we weren't, you know, you know, we, it just, most of the time they, they would, say, have you eaten lunch today? And they would buy me food. It wasn't, you know, that wasn't that kind of situation where they could tease me right. about it. It wasn't, so. we didn't have that going on. So, um, but the time that I really, I got rid of the bottles was the time that at Christmas, I didn't have a lot of stuff to give. So for the neighbors, I made, I filled the bottles with colored water, food coloring and water. Mm-hmm. And, and so for the front room, for the windows on the front room. So they got four bottles. One was yellow, you know, green, you know, red. The four bottles were colored water in them. And somebody said, you know, you should get rid of those now. You don't, you shouldn't have those anymore. That's, that's, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I got rid of them. (laughs) So that was it. But I just, I just kind of grew up around all of that. I, you know, I'm just that kind of kid. I collected, you know, beer bottle, te- the tops of beer bottles for years. Uh, that, that was what my sisters and I did. We were bar broke. We spent lots and lots of time in the parking lot while our dad was in there doing some business with some guy, you know, pool, playing pool, darts, whatever. You know, once in a while we'd get a pizza. But that's that was it. That was my story. And so when I wrote this novel, I just tried to sprinkle in from a kid like me, how does this happen? How do you get from there to here? Um, yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. Okay, Jody, you're all warmed up here. Okay. So, yeah. so guess what? It's time for me to turn this show over to you. It's time for you to share your story with us. The battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom, and then finally your journey into recovery up until today. So Jody, take it away. All right. All right. So, well, I'm Jody and I'm, you know, a drug addict and alcoholic. That's how that goes. I always like this. I always like to say that because it just kind of puts me in place. So because I grew up around alcohol and drugs, I became accustomed to using drugs and alcohol. Now, I don't blame drugs and alcohol. I, I actually am one of those people that I know that they saved my life. They saved my life until I, until I found recovery. There's no way that I would have ever made it through my teenage years without walking into the traffic or hanging myself or whatever it was that I used to dream of that I could do that day. 
there's no way I would have done it if I didn't have the ability to have a beer after school or drink someone's wine or drink the Canadian club that somebody left, you know, somewhere. I just, that, that, just having that available just made it easier for me to stay in this world because I came up with the idea that I should leave when I was nine or 10 years old, that I, I didn't want to be here. Um, there was nothing for me. I hated my life. I hated being poor. I hated being a girl. I just, I just hated everything. And I didn't feel like there was anybody in my family that supported me or that liked me. Um, and I don't know that I made that up or if it was true or not, but I just felt it. So I began to seek out, by the time I was 12 or 13, I began to seek out other people like me who would drink and who would experiment with drugs the way that I wanted to, which was a lot and, you know, all the time. And that's what I did. And I, and I did it until I was... 26 when I was 19 I married a guy who said he would take care of me and I wanted someone to take care of me could somebody <laughs> please take care of me <laughs> right. and uh, he had a job and he drank the way that I did well I probably drank worse than him but <laughs> which, we're just not to talk about that um, <laughs> you know and he sold drugs once in a while, and I was a big user of drugs. So it was, you know, I don't know. It was one of those, I better do something because my life's not going anywhere. And I had enrolled in beauty school to be a hairdresser. And, um, of course, I got kicked out because I was loaded every day, and I was doing these obnoxious haircuts on people who were just innocent victims of my scissors. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It was just like, I just had this one chaotic situation after another. And um, so I got married and tried to figure out how I could live in the world without being drunk and loaded all the time. And, oh, it, I was so miserable. So because I was so miserable, I thought, well, what I should do now is have a child, right? I should now have children because that'll make me feel better. So I, I have two children. Um, so I had a daughter, and my life was okay for a little while. It worked out. It was, I felt good. And then, I don't know, one day somebody brought over some cocaine or whatever, and I'm off. I'm mm. off and running. can't stop. And so I think, well, I better do something else. Okay, I'll have another child. This will work. This is going to fix me fix me. I'm always trying to fix me. And uh, I have another child. And it doesn't go so well. I, I'm really severely, severely depressed after that child. I'm like, you know, you've heard of postpartum depression. Yes. And so that was said. I was, it wasn't the first time I'd ever been depressed. And it wasn't the first time that I'd ever landed in a psychiatric um, unit. Um, I'm a teenager that was depressed a lot. And my mother would send me to a psychiatrist on a pretty regular basis, and I would entertain him with stories of my family. And in return for that, I would get Valium and Two and All and whatever else he would give me. And I liked it. I liked that. There was always a reward for telling the psychiatrist some big secret. Um, and so I was um, locked up in a mental institution, a mental hospital, 
which I liked. I wasn't opposed to it. People were nice there. Everybody was kind of like me. There was a drug cart that, you know, jingled as it went down the hallway. I loved the sound. Um, there was no responsibility. I didn't have to do anything. And I'd been there for a while when a social worker came into my room and sat by the end of my bed, and she said, I've been reading your chart for a few days, these records of you that go way back to when you're like 15. And she said, you know, I don't think that you're, um, that you're bipolar. I don't think that you're schizophrenic. I don't think you have the anxiety disease. These are all diagnoses that I've had. She said, I think that you're chemically dependent. And if you don't get away from these doctors, I, I think they'll kill you with their drugs. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> Chemically dependent? Yeah. She said, yeah. Well, that's such a nice name. She didn't call me any of the names that I grew up hearing about women who drink and use drugs the way that I did. She didn't call me a whore or a lush or any of the things that I, I heard about. She said chemically dependent. And then she said, I'll help you if you want help. And, of course, I raised both of my hands. I want help. I've always wanted help. I've wanted help since I was born. Please help somebody. Look what's happening. <laughs> God, <laughs> help us out. Wow. But I did not know that the help was coming in this package of, I ended up in a woman's alcohol and drug treatment facility like 48 hours later. And that I had to convince my mother to sign me out against doctor's orders, uh, doctor's wishes at the hospital, at the psychiatric one, because he was so angry that this social worker had done this and he did not want me to leave. But I was going to go for it. I just thought, I'm going to do this. I don't know what's there, but I'm going to go. And I did. And I was very ill from drug withdrawal because he wasn't going to prescribe anything for me when I was leaving there. Um, so while I went into a treatment center on January 20th, 1985, um, my, I didn't have my last pill until 3.30 p.m. on February 7th, 1985. And the strangest, funniest, weirdest thing is that the person that helped me withdraw from drugs at that treatment center is the man who wrote my favorite chapter the favorite story in the back of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He wrote Dr. Alcoholic Addict. But I didn't know that was him until I was at a convention when I was three years sober and he stood up to talk and I'm like, oh my God, that's the same guy who came to my room, who took my blood pressure, who took my pulse, who, who told me, this is the last pill. You're done. You get no more. And that was the weirdest thing. It was the weirdest thing. So I never did it. I never used again. I had to find a way to live in the world without them. And um, I just did what that treat those people at that treatment center told me to do. I, I went to meetings. I went to a meeting every day, sometimes twice a day for four or five years. You know, I just designed my whole life around recovery. I got rid of all the alcohol and drugs in my house, and I didn't go around my family for two or three years. Not that they wanted to see me. <laughs> no. Oh, <Lord>. no. <laughs> no. I know the feeling. <laughs> what they wanted was their stuff back. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, 
So that's how it went for me. And that was, you know, I don't have a particular rock bottom because it was just one after another after another. I just couldn't do it one more goddamn minute. That's what it went for. And I was getting no relief from the drugs or alcohol anymore. I could not not use. It was the hardest place to be. It was hell. So I'm one of those people who had the pink cloud for a while, for a while. I just was in a place of disbelief that I was not using. And I had a drunk or drug dream almost every night for like a year. It's just... Oh, you know, it was just insane, insane. But that's how my recovery went. I, um, I just built this community of people around me who were all doing the same thing I was, and you know, struggling to um, just, just to keep afloat sometimes. But and other times, it was um, having the time of my life that I was waking up in the morning, knowing that. While I may have dreamed that I was using, I actually hadn't used. And, and um, so I, I'm just kind of a result of that kind of old school kind of sponsorship, kind of do this thing, do what we did. If you want what we have, you'll do what we did. In fact, not, that's not the truth. If you want what we have, you'll do what we say because I know they didn't do it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Yeah. No, 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 no. Because I do it sometimes too. Right? Right. Uh huh. Like, oh, wait a minute. I'm not sure about this, but let's try it. It could work for you. It didn't work for me, but let's try it. Um, yeah, I did. I did all of that. I even didn't leave my husband because you know we we were not gonna. It wasn't gonna work. We had said and done all those things to each other that you would never say if you wanted, if you planned to be friends on any level the rest of your life. It was over. But I couldn't leave until I was two years sober. Uh, I couldn't leave until I had a job and I could support my kids. I, you know, I just, it was, uh, it was an interesting time. And the whole time was, it was happening. My family was watching me to say, you know, like, is she really doing this? Is she really still sober? I don't think they believed I was sober until I was 15, maybe 20 years sober. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't think they believed it. They, they still hid all of their drugs, their prescriptions when I was coming over, <laughs> their wallets. <laughs> Everybody hid everything. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, it was it was kind of strange. And then when I was five years sober, I met a man from New Zealand and um, we well, I guess I was four years sober. We were dating in the States for a long time and he was playing polo in Canada. Um, and we met at a I had a job by that time and we just kind of met an event and um we started dating and then he was going back to New Zealand and he said, why don't you come with me? And I'm like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> okay. I said, well, I got these kids. He liked my kids. My kids liked him. So that was it. So I went, I went and, um, I started some meetings down there. I started a woman's meeting in the town I live in. I started other meetings and I just did what, you know, what a vision for you in that book tells me to do. I, I, I just built a community. I just found other people in, in recovery. And um, 
I went on 12-step calls and I volunteered, you know, on the 24-hour service hotline. And I did whatever I could do to keep myself clean and sober and sane. And, um, and in that journey, I was able to put a life together and to build a life, a much, much, much better life than I ever would have had had not I become a drug addict and an alcoholic. Truly, I never would have had this life, not this one, not this good life. I would have had something else, but not this. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that is my story. It is. It's a beautiful story and you tell it well. Uh, I wish it was a little longer, <laughs> you know, because and, and only because this is probably one of the first interviews where I felt like I wasn't on audiobooks, right? The way, you know, the way you tell it and your tone is perfect. You know, I was just sitting here following along like it's this beautiful little story, which it's a, it's a train wreck, but it's a beautiful story as we go along. I just enjoyed listening to you tell the story. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I... I, I had the sponsor. I still have the same sponsor. I always wanted to be like, I thought, oh, I'll be a circuit speaker. You could be. And she'd say, you can't, you cannot be a circuit speaker because you cannot share for more than five minutes without lying. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? And she'd say, well, you start embellishing, which is a form of lying. You start exaggerating. I'm like, well, yes, I do. Well, yes, I do. I still do. I'm not not necessarily here on your podcast, okay? But I can catch myself like, oh, yeah, yeah. I should. I probably shouldn't have said it that way. Yeah. So it's probably good. She also said we shouldn't make stars out of people in recovery. It's dangerous place. It's a dangerous place to be a star in 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 a in a twelve step meeting. It's it's a separation thing that um, we most of us don't need. We've already had all those other things that we've done to try to separate us from the world so that our addiction can thrive in our brain and make us crazy. Yes, I, there is, there's certainly two sides to that story. And, you know, I've heard both sides, uh, especially when I started the podcast, because it does, it puts you in the limelight and, you know, discussing recovery. So there, there could be, uh, misconstrued, or it could be a conflict, or said there's a conflict in reference to being anonymous or not anonymous, or you know what your viewpoint is on these things. But I think that today there's been a shift. There's been a very strong shift. Uh, I don't know too many people that will wear the, uh, the veil of shame when it comes to being an addict. Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember the last time you know I felt shame or remorse about being an addict. Right. Uh, just the opposite. You know, I, I, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful every single day for the fact that I came to recognize or came to accept that I was an addict and that I needed help and that alone I was going to die. Mm. And uh, I was miserable and hated my life. And all of a sudden, I had hope for the first time. And I think yeah. that there's a lot of people out there that are suffering. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people that, especially in my Facebook group, that don't want to go to meetings and don't want to talk to their spouse or don't want to talk to their family because they're ashamed and they're afraid of the unknown or afraid to be outed or afraid to have to stop. And so they just isolate. And the cool thing is that little by little, once they hear more people talk about, which is what the podcast has done. A lot of people say, wow, 
I went to my first meeting, you know, and thanks to this podcast, because I heard so many people sharing their story and they're like, that's just like me. That's I I agree. I agree. I just was, I was, I mean, when I got clean in 85, you know, I mean, there was a lot of, well, there weren't very many women going to meetings, first of all. Right. I mean, and I had an incredible amount of shame, not shame about my addiction and alcoholism, but shame about the things I had said and done on my way to recovery, on my way to get here. You know, I, I was a mother with two daughters that I put in, you know, not very good situations because I needed to use. And I am really a firm believer in that I, when I am using, I have a complete disregard for my own well-being and for yours as well. It puts me in that place where I'm going to do whatever I have to do, and it doesn't matter what it costs you. Um, and that did, that did bring me quite a bit of shame, actually. And those, those things, you know, you know I'm not, I, don't, I don't wish that I hadn't done them, but I don't ever want to forget them either. No. Um, no. Yeah. So I just have this, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about things. I was, I, I told my sponsor I was doing this. I said, oh, I'm going to do this podcast. And she said, well, just remember this. You can be a good example or a great reminder. <laughs> <laughs> she is old school, man. I mean, that she's, is that's old school. And, she, and she's in her eighties and I just I started laughing. I said, That is always the story. That's always the story. But that's true, you know. I'm gonna I could be a a good example or a great reminder. So um, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things and, and you hear around in recovery that sticks with me and makes me behave better than I want to lots. Like, uh, I, I really want to say something here. I really want to do something, but I'm not going to because I'm practicing behaving better than I want to. Mm. Mm. So how far along were you in your recovery when you quit smoking? I was eight. I was um, eight years sober. I quit smoking five minutes before my 35th belly button birthday. Nice. And and the reason I quit smoking is because the treatment center that I went to was in was was a building that used to be used for nuns. And because I'm not Catholic, I can't quite remember what is that called? Um, a convent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there was a room. It was a building. It had 25 small bedrooms. My bedroom on it said Sister Mary Catherine. Well, in the middle of the big facility was this substantial Catholic church. And because I was not very well when I got there, the resident manager took away my cigarettes and my lighter after I'd caught myself on fire and said, okay, if you want a cigarette, you have to ask me. Anyway, all of these women would go out every, you know, every day to this bus would come and they would go out to this, whatever they were going to the A&A place, right? I thought they were going to the Automobile Association to learn to work on their cars. I had no idea it was going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd never ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, one day they're all gone and I, it's Saturday. I really want a cigarette really bad. So I, there's somebody cigarettes and lighters sitting there. So of course I take them and I wander outside and because I don't want anybody to see that I've stolen this. And I go into this building, which I open the door and it puts me in this, the cloak room of like a, the, a Catholic church with all these beautiful robes and, 
Well, anyway, there's another door there. And if you open that a couple steps up, it takes you right into the altar area right there. So I got a climb up on the altar, the marble slab thing. Nobody's in this church. It's big. There's no one there. It's just me. I climb up. There's a big, huge statue of Jesus, right? Huge, right above my head. And I light a cigarette and I'm laying there looking up at his dust feet thing. And I'm thinking, okay, here's the deal. I don't know that I believe in you. I, I Probably I don't. But just in case, here's the deal. Don't let anything bad ever happen to me again or my kids. And make sure that I you know, stay clean and do all the right things and I get a great life. And if that works out okay, then if I ever make it to age 35, I'll quit smoking. <laughs> Love it. And that's how I quit smoking because I told my sponsor that. And about three months before my 35th birthday, she sent me a postcard and said, well, it looks like you're going to live to 35. <clears throat> so you'll have to do something. So I did. I quit smoking. It was hard. I mean, I smoked 40, 60 cigarettes a day. Oh. Oh, I love smoking. Oh, God, I love smoking. God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I can I, I, I can still feel you I, I I can still feel you loving on it. Uh, <laughs> I know that, that was a that was a challenge getting cigarettes, but it was you know I did it and I used the uh, I used the six and seven step. I used it right everything right on my spike. Okay, so I've never smoked again either. That is absolutely a miracle, and God, it's like I remember having that prayer. I remember doing that same prayer and it was in front of a, a Jesus. It wasn't, uh-huh. it wasn't as big as yours, but it was uh, a picture. Uh, we'd rented, uh, my ex-wife and I had rented this house and in the house there was a carving of the Last Supper. Yeah. And, you know, it was fixed inside the wall so there was no way to like just take it down because I certainly didn't want it in the house but there was no way to take it down. Uh, so I, I just kind of left it there but what I did was I put a bar in front of it Oh, yeah, like great. sacrilege, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. just, you know, just your, your, your typical debauchery. Uh, mm-hmm. and I just remember on, you know, the, my bottom, my, the, I was very, very close to my bottom. And, and I remember I had just drank too much and snorted too much and taken too many pills and I, I couldn't sleep and I was sweating and I was, you know, going out of my mind. And I just remember getting in front of that, you know, wood carving and saying, Oh, I don't know who you are or what you are or where you are. And I don't know if I'm praying to God or Satan or whatever, but whoever's out there, you know, I can't do this anymore. So either take me out of this world or, you know, help me get clean because I'm, I'm done here. You know, I, I, I remember that. I remember that desperation, like absolute desperation that I'm willing to reach out to anything greater than myself, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And it comes, it comes. It does. It works. I have to say, I, for all the times I'd sit around me and say, that's never going to work. That is a really stupid idea. Because that's what I would, in my head, the whole time, through the whole meeting, that's what I would do. If I could stay in a meeting, it takes me 22 minutes to settle into a meeting. <laughs> the same amount of time that it takes 10 milligrams of Valium to work. They're both 22 minutes. 22 minutes. So for the first 22 minutes, it's like an option whether I'm staying or not. After 22 minutes, I'm stuck in the seat, right? <laughs> That was my that's that's my option. That's it's always been this way. I know it's the twenty two minute rule. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I I understand. I'm kind of 
you know, the weird thing. I got the weird thing going on and the weird thing might have inspired the drug thing. Not sure. I don't know which came first, but it doesn't bother me so much anymore. Right? <laughs> what an yeah. amazing story. I just love it. Fucking <laughs> you're killing me. Now, did you write any other books other than How to Grow an Addict? I'm working on a novel. It, I'm I'm a slow writer. I'm a slow writer because I have work. I have to, you know, I have to work to support my writing. And I mean, well, I would like it if you know I had a bestseller and everything would go, and I wouldn't have to <laughs> produce shows all the time anymore. That would be nice, but that's not what's going on right now. So I'm writing another novel that I've been working on for a few years. It has, you know, it's not really about drug addiction and alcoholism, but of course. I can't help myself. It will have sprinkles of those because in my mind, and uh, drug addicts and alcoholics always make the best characters. Yeah. Always yeah. make the best characters. Yeah. They're most interesting. So, of course, I will have a few of those. But I, I, won't, I don't expect to have it done for another year or two. All right. All right. Listen, I've been working on my novel for the last... 14 years. Uh, yeah, I haven't even started page one yet. But yeah, it's, all, it's all in my head, right? You know, yeah. I, I keep talking about it. it's It's so hard. You know, I've interviewed writers and it's like the discipline that it takes is is, is tremendous. You know, there, it, it, there is a discipline and a strategy behind it. And yeah, it's just like anything else. You have to apply these things. You know, wishing it, you know, it's not going to it's not going to bring it into into uh, reality. It's the same discipline in the same steps. It's the same one. It's the same. I don't want to go to that meeting. I'm going to go anyway. You know, it's the same thing. Get up, show up, do the same things. That's, I applied all of that to writing. And that it was strange. But every day, one day at a time, I would write a little bit more and a little bit more. And then, ooh, here it is. How strange. I can't believe that worked. <laughs> I thought I'd have to sit down and write it all in one week. Right. That's, that's all. Oh, it has to be done in one week. I'm going to wait till the last minute. And do it all in one week. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Yeah. So. I got you. Anyway, all right. it's it's all it's all good. And I was reading. You know, you sent me this little thing uh, about how your program goes and how this goes and what would I advice would I give to a newcomer? And I just want I want to give that advice. I just before it get, leaves my head. I just think that sometimes we who have been around for a while forget to tell the newcomer this one thing, and it is do not drink or drug no matter what. No matter what, don't do it, and that your life will get different, and different will be better. That's my, that's my deal. That's what I think. Oh. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm glad you got it out there. And since you're already springboarding into the closing questions, let's just go there. Okay. 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 <laughs> All right. There's Jody. another one. There's another one. Oh, sorry. There's a few. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So, Jody, I'm now going to ask you some questions for the newcomer. Okay. Four questions now instead of five. Okay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm jumping. Oh, no sorry. worries. No worries. This is great. I mean, this a lot of this interview has been impromptu, and I love it. I love it. So um, I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers. Are you ready? Sure. Beautiful. All right. So number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? I, I didn't know. I didn't know I was a drug addict or alcoholic. I thought I was crazy. That's that's what kept me. I was 
I, I it never occurred to me not to use never not once until I got till someone said you can't do this anymore. Okay, so that leads me to question number two. Then, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening? That aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover. Uh, when somebody told me that I'd had a spiritual awakening, someone told my sponsor told me <laughs> after about a year. She said, "Well, this is what she said." She said, you know that little spiritual awakening you had in that treatment center? You know, the one that made you feel good and hopeful and everything? And I'd say, yeah. She goes, well, that's not going to be enough to carry you through. So you're going to have to enhance your spiritual journey, and this is how we're going to do it. So she told me I'd had one. I didn't know that until she brought it up because I was expecting, you know, something lightning bolt. Jesus appearing or a burning bush or the seas parting or something like that. And I did, I, that's what I was expecting. I wasn't expecting this. Oh, okay. I'm feeling better. Okay. I remember doing this though. Do you remember seeing green for the first time when you're like sober? I, I never knew green. I'd never seen green like that. Like this is really green. Like, wow. I'd been drugged for so long. I didn't really realize that these colors, they're all I just thinking about, um, yeah, the birds and the trees. I, I never paid attention to those things until I got. So that was the spiritual awakening of some sort. Like, wow, uh, there's other things here. <laughs> life, life was so much like a black and white movie. It was so cloudy and gray and dim. And I live in Costa Rica. So it is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Uh, these amazing rainforests. And even when you're driving in the city, uh, in the outskirts or along the highway, you will see these amazing hillsides and uh, covered with vegetation. And I remember what you're talking about as clear as day and just, you know, days into recovery. I'm driving to a meeting and I go, oh my God, like this is beautiful. Like I, Look at these mountains. And I just remember being dumbfounded by, you know, the, the, just something that's been in my face for years. Well, that's a spiritual awakening. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you start to connect with the world that you actually live in. Yes. Those are spiritual awakenings. And I, I, of course, I didn't, I didn't know. So someone told me. So that's how I figured that out. Someone told me. <laughs> well, and it's another reason why I asked this question, because there's so many, there's people that are in early recovery that are waiting for these white light moments to show up, and then they don't realize that they've been happening since practically the day they surrendered and asked for help, right? These aha moments just immediately started to happen. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, Jody, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery or any other book? Well, you know, it's that book. It's, it's that book. I'm not saying I've always been a fan of that book. In fact, I have scribbled words out of that book more more often than I, you know, in the first couple of years. And I could, I just spent my whole meeting time scribbling in, in the big book, taking out all the gods, you know, putting dog in, you know. <laughs> but that's the book. That's the book. Um, so... I wasn't a very good reader. I went to a reading class, and I took that book with me to my reading class so that I could learn to read that book. And sometimes I could only read a paragraph at a time, but it didn't matter. 
I was doing it. So that's the book. There was no other book that ever contributed to my life greater than that book. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, And of course, would you recommend your own book to a newcomer? Well, I certainly would. I don't know why I would, because I feel like I should. (laughs) I mean, you could hate it. And I'm sorry, but read it anyway. And then if you hate it, just write me an email. Don't put a review up. I don't need a bad review. I'm <laughs> capable of writing my own bad review, right? <laughs> Perfectly capable. I don't need any more negative stuff. I can do that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing how we can. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so don't beat me up. Okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, on yeah. that note, what is the best way for our listeners to reach out to you if they want to? I do have a website, jawright.net. That has your email contact. It does. It has all those things in it. It has places you can buy my book. It has reviews. It has a few essays I've written. I wrote an essay about why an alcoholic like me shouldn't write a memoir. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, I have, yeah. So it's got some interesting, weird stuff about me and my writing on that website. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. And number five. What is the best suggestion you have ever received? To eat breakfast. <laughs> to eat breakfast. Eat and, and not a Snickers candy bar and not a and not a liter or a liter of Coca-Cola. That's not breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. This is what this is what my sponsor would say. Right. We're going to have breakfast and here's what that means. So I started to eat breakfast, and then I started to feed my kids the same breakfast. It was very strange. But that started us off on this path of being able to do things in a way that was nurturing to us instead of destructive. Because prior to that, I only ate sugar, drank Coke, um, smoked cig- I did. I had no good skills. So that, that's probably it. Eat, some, eat good breakfast. Toast with peanut butter, oatmeal, whatever. Treat your body better. Yes. Because this is it. This is the one we get. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. is a beautiful suggestion. It's the first time we've ever had that suggestion. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> a lot of firsts with Jody. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> well, this has been... <laughs> okay, when well, you keep me on, I'll just go forever. But anyway, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks. for This has been really entertaining. You're pretty entertaining, you know. Well, I can say the same to you. I've absolutely enjoyed your story. Again, you tell it so well, and it's, it's, it's so easy to follow. I'm telling you, you should do a, little, a few more speaking engagements. And again, it's just in a room full of alcoholics or addicts, right? So, you know, okay. if I were you, I'd do it. Okay, I will. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll email you the next time if somebody asks me to be a speaker which they don't ask me very often. (laughs) Keep me posted. Keep me posted. (laughs) Okay. Thank Uh, you. All right, Jody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a blast. All right, folks. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. 
We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.